Good Well, I'm going to talk from one theme in Chapter 8 of Luke, as we've been going through. But to start, I thought I'd um, circle back and recap on a story that Matt talked us through at the end of Chapter 7 a couple of weeks ago. And I did have a shiny, nice um, PowerPoint that I failed to attach to the email to send today, so you won't be seeing that. I also forgot jam for the bagels and Eli's a nappy bag, so it's just a all general, general forgetting today. Sorry about that. So if you want to turn to in your devices or your books or whatever, um, Luke chapter 7 verse 36. But first I'll just give a little bit of background context. So the Jewish people of the time in, in, this, in these stories um, lived or tried to live under the Old Testament purity laws. So there are a whole lot of rules about what was clean and what was unclean. Um, Unclean things were things like certain foods, uh, bodily fluids, some sicknesses like leprosy, um, dead bodies or sinful acts. Sometimes the uncleanness could be passed from the person to other people or to the things that they touched, like in some cases the, the chair that they sat on or the bed that they slept on would also become unclean and anybody touching that would become unclean. Um, so a person who was um, unclean had to was restricted from religious activities and ex- and excluded from contact. Um, and in a person in a in a time when they didn't have soap or modern plumbing, we can see that maybe the reason for some of them was public health. Uh, but I am no expert on the, the um, mysterious reasons for the rest of them, Um, but I do think it's probably a lot to do with God's holiness and his desire for us to be holy like he is, Um, but that's a a whole another message for another day. Um, So by God's law, someone who is unclean must be made clean again, and so in the Old Testament that could have happened by, um, well, there was protocol for every different kind of uncleanness, and it could have been ceremonial washing, sacrifice, um, isolation periods, which we, we understand now. Um, and being so being made unclean was really, really bad, and purification could be quite costly. But in the New Testament, it is Jesus himself who makes us clean. So all of that as a backdrop, let's go into Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Um, sorry, you won't get to read it, and there will be a fair bit that I'm reading out, but you can't, you can't skim over the Bible, can you? It's just beautiful. <laughs> All right. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Denarii is um, currency. None of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them would love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, her great love has as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So this is an embarrassingly extravagant display of adoration for Jesus. This notoriously sinful, unclean woman has come into the home of this respected, pious religious leader, uninvited, to anoint Jesus' feet, to honour him. But she's undone with her worship and she ends up blubbing all over him and tears are falling down and she's wetting his feet and so she gets out her hair and she's wiping it up and then she's anointing him. And to us, this whole scene is just really weird, but... Back then, it would have been scandalous, worse than weird. This is a woman with a bad reputation who a religious leader or a teacher, a rabbi, would have been expected to shame and definitely not allow himself to be touched by. To be touched by this unclean woman would make him unclean too. So the the response would have been, get away from me. And she's made it even worse by touching him with her hair, which in the day was taboo, and no decent woman of the time would have shown her hair in public. It was so culturally expected that a woman like this would be excluded that the only explanation that Simon, the host, can think of for Jesus' behaviour is that she must just not know what kind of woman this is. But Jesus does know. And he receives her love, her acts of love, and commends her for them. He sees her many sins and he forgives her. He defends her to her accuser. He sees her and he accepts her. In fact, it's the religious guy that Jesus tells off. It's like he's saying, Simon, you might be much better at following the letter of the law than this woman is, but you could learn a thing or two from the way that she loves and trusts. Because isn't that what Jesus is asking of all of us? When our religion comes without faith and love, what is, what is left? We all, like this woman, have been forgiven much. Just not all of us can see it. And I think that we are blessed when we are aware of our abject dependence on the grace of God, when we're leaning into it and knowing that we are fully relying on that. He is the one who takes our sin and our brokenness and our failures and redeems them. It is never by our own efforts. And I think it's really interesting when you're looking at this in the context of cleanness and uncleanness. This woman was washing Jesus' feet. She's taking away the grime of the day. It was like a custom of the time to wash someone's feet as they came into a home. She's, she's taking all this, she's washing it. But Simon, the host, is looking at it and going, she's not making him clean, she's making him dirty by, what, by her sinfulness. But the third way, what is actually happening, the reality is that Jesus is making her clean in this moment. Isn't that amazing? And so we move from that story, so that's the context, the, the backstory. We move from that story into the start of chapter 8. And it's almost, it's almost like starts with a side note about some of the women who travelled with Jesus. And some of these women had been um, delivered from demons, some had been cured from diseases, and some of them were supporting Jesus out of their own funds. And it's kind of, to me, it reads a little bit like Lucas saying, 
Well, straight after this woman who anointed Jesus, she's not the only woman that Jesus noticed and valued. There were, there were all of these women. Um, women were a feature of Jesus' ministry, which is in stark contrast to other rabbis of the time. Maybe other rabbis now, I don't know. There are so many cultural differences between our time and theirs and, and our culture, uh, ethnicity and, and theirs. And, um, like, I don't know, if you arrived at someone's house and they wanted to wash your feet, how honoured you would feel. You might feel other emotions. Um, and women had a really different place back then. They were seen as second-class citizens or worse sometimes, whose role was to raise children and to keep the home, and keep to the home, actually. It wasn't appropriate for a woman to even talk to a man in public, um, and there was restrictions on what religious activities they could be involved in. A daily prayer of the time was, I thank you, God, that I'm not a woman. But here we see Jesus scandalously including Jesus in his wider circle of disciples, talking with them, healing them, teaching them, and valuing them. So now we're going to skip over a huge chunk of chapter 8, even though I hate to do it because it's all amazing. Like, there's the... A beautiful parable of where Jesus is encouraging us to be fertile soil for his message with the, the sower and the seed. There's the time where he's on a boat and there's a big storm and he's just trying to sleep through the whole journey and his disciples are freaking out because they think they're going to die and then he wakes up, comes the storm and the disciples say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Which is much like the question that we just read, who is this who even forgives sins? And then there's an amazing um, story of oppression from severe demonic oppression. But we will uh, leave all that behind. We've had an adventure on the lake. We've had one on one side. And then we're going to pick back up in Luke 8, verse 40, 40. On the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. Then a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. As Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. Everyone denied it, and Peter said, Master, this whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, Someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking to her, a messenger arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. He told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But when Jesus heard what had happened, he said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just have faith and she will be healed. When they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, James, and the little girl's father and mother. The house was filled with people weeping and wailing, but he said, stop the weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him because they all knew she had died. Then Jesus took her by the hand and said in a loud voice, my child, get up. And at that moment, her life returned and she immediately stood up. But Jesus told 
them to give her something to eat. Her parents were overwhelmed, but Jesus insisted that they not tell anyone what had happened. So these nested stories begin with a person of religious status, Jairus. So he's a a ruler of the synagogue, like a person who managed the services there. He's desperate to save his daughter, who is very, very sick. I don't know what it would have cost him to ask for help from this radical, um, outrageous radical rabbi, but he's doing it anyway. His fear of the worst drives him to seek for help. And he's gone directly to Jesus to ask him to come and pray for his little girl. So they're on the way to his house, weaving their way through the thick crowds when we enter the story. In contrast to that direct approach of this person of social standing, we see someone else sidle in from the background. There's this woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years. That's the entire lifetime of the little girl in the story. A person with internal bleeding was also considered ritually unclean, which meant that they were excluded from religious and social life. She was untouchable, outcast, dirty. This woman who had nobody who would go and fetch Jesus for her, like this father would do for the little girl. And no ordinary rabbi would have even gone if asked because he would have not wanted to become unclean either. But this woman is desperate. She's spent all her money on useless cures and she longs to be healed, to be restored to life. Maybe she thinks that Jesus would reject her as the outcast she is. Or maybe she thinks she'd be stopped before she even got there. Or maybe she knows the mission that Jesus is on and she would never interrupt such an important mission. I don't know why she doesn't approach Jesus directly like Jairus did. It could be any or all of those reasons. But... I kind of imagine her, she would have had her head covered anyway, but maybe she's pulled it right down and she's hoping desperately that no one will recognise her as she's weaving her way towards Jesus, hoping that she can get in and out before anyone notices, before they know that she has deliberately made this man unclean for her own gain. She thinks there's such a crush of Peter we're touching him already, which the disciples point out afterwards, that surely nobody will notice. And what faith she has in that power to think, to think that this will do something if she gets there. She's hoping that no one will know that she did the unthinkable thing. But Jesus does know straight away and says, who touched me? And I've always, always, until now, I've read this as kind of an accusation, like the angry teacher at the front of the classroom going, who threw that? <laughs> you know? Um, and like, why did he call her out? Did he do it to embarrass her or shame her? Because she was. She, she comes falling on the ground, trembling in fear as, as she confesses what she's done. She's ashamed and she's doing it in front of everybody. It says everybody heard. She was ashamed in this moment. So why would Jesus do that to her? Actually, I wonder if it was a really important part of his mercy towards her. We don't know how many other people might have been healed in the same way. Maybe other people did this and were healed and Jesus never mentioned it. But we know that this woman most probably was living with really public ramifications of a very private condition. If she had slunk off without her healing being announced, as a Jesus essentially did, would anybody have believed that she was healed? Would she, would she have been able to re-enter society? I don't know. Or maybe another reason could have been that Jesus, by speaking to her and blessing her, was able to give 
give her her healing instead of her going away with the guilt that she actually stole it. Either way, she was already healed. Jesus didn't have to stop, pause in this important mission of life and death for a very important person. He didn't have to pause to bless this unnoticed woman on the fringes. The good was already done, but he did. He stopped, he noticed her, he loved her, he valued her, he restored her. And he blesses her with the words, daughter, your faith has healed you, go in peace. But right at the moment when this woman's life has been changed, it's been restored, her horizons have totally been transformed, Jairus gets the word that it's too late. His daughter is dead. Jesus has just told this woman with the issue of blood that her faith has healed her. And he turns to this man and says, don't be afraid, just believe and she'll be healed. I wonder how Jairus felt in that moment. Was he feeling angry or resentful that they'd been delayed on the way by an unclean woman with underhanded tactics? Did he feel full of faith because he'd just seen something quite amazing happen? Whatever he felt, he had enough faith in Jesus to put himself and his family through watching this teacher do whatever he wanted to do because hope is a risk, isn't it? So they carry on to his house, and with the girl's hands in his, he's picked them up. Jesus tells her to get up, and she does. He tells this dead girl to get up, and she does. And this time it isn't Jesus receiving the touch that defiles him. He reaches for maybe the most unclean thing of all, a dead body. Like the woman anointing Jesus who's who defiled him by her sinfulness, and the woman with the internal bleeding who defiled him with his sickness, there is power and touch in this encounter. And this time Jesus chooses to to defile himself by touching the dead. Why would he do that? And N.T. Wright says it better than I could. Jesus shares the pollution of sickness and death, but the power of his own love, and it is love above all that shines through these stories, turns that pollution into wholeness and hope. This is the message that Luke would repeat to us today in whatever problem or suffering we face. The presence of Jesus, getting his hands dirty with the problems of the world, is what we need and what in the gospel we are promised. As we live inside Luke's developing story, we find Jesus quietly coming alongside us in our own muddle and fear. He welcomes our trembling touch and responds with that central biblical command, don't be afraid. Jesus, who is God in all his perfection and purity, come to earth as a human, didn't come to condemn us for our sin, our brokenness and sickness, but to come in contact with it, to absorb it, to take it upon ourselves, himself and redeem us. He takes our uncleanness and gives us his cleanness. He takes our brokenness and gives us his wholeness. He takes our death and gives us his life. How amazing is that? So I'd like to leave you with three thoughts that would be displayed for you now. (laughs) Imagine it. You can imagine it more beautiful than it was. Um, From the stories of these three women today. First, we see Jesus enter their stories and really see these women with compassion and love. They are left forgiven, healed and alive. We might feel ashamed, excluded, ignored, unseen or beyond help. We might feel too bad or too sad for him to reach us. But we know this about Jesus, and this is point number one. He came for all of us. 
the marginalised, the unworthy. Only he really sees your situation and he loves you. He came for you. Secondly, these stories are some of many in the Gospels that show us that Jesus loves women. Since the world turned away from God's original way at the start, men and women have had issues between them. But through all of our stuff, we see that our saviour is for women. In the story of the woman anointing Jesus, he asks Simon, do you see this woman? Jesus does. He is the God who sees. He sees and understands and he walks with us as women and as men, because it is hard to be a man too. Thirdly, in all three of these stories, faith is key. Faith is central. He tells the sinful woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. He says to the woman with the hemorrhage, your faith has made you well, go in peace. He tells Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith and she will be healed. And I don't pretend to understand the mysterious relationship between faith and healing. I know that sometimes we can have an amazing amount of faith and the healing that we've asked for doesn't happen. And sometimes we don't really expect much to happen at all and something does. I don't know how much faith a dead girl can have. But we do know that we must have faith to be saved. We see in these stories that Jesus prizes faith. And the writer of Hebrews says that, in fact, it's actually impossible to please God without faith. So how is your faith today, friends? Is your life built on trusting God and your words and actions and thoughts and decisions flowing out of that? Or are you building your hope on someone or something else, even if it's yourself? I know that it's a constant temptation to me and I must repent of my faithlessness often. But I I turn to Jesus and I say, I believe, help my unbelief. And maybe you would want to pray like I do. Jesus, here's my battered seed of faith. Would you be the one, because I can't, to nurture it and to grow it into a strong tree with roots anchored down into the soil, drawing nourishment and producing fruit? Here is my gift of a willing heart. Would you, would you give me the gift of faith and nurture it in me? Because this Jesus who sees us all, who knows us, who calms storms, who heals sicknesses, who restores people to life, who casts out demons, who so tenderly includes all of us in his family, oh, he is worth it. He is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of coming to know and to love. And if you don't know my saviour, Jesus, today, now's a good time. It's always a good time. Um, Or if you want to reach for him um, in any way, in any shape or form, um, we would, I and I'm hopefully some other people, would love to pray for anyone who would love to pray. Um, So how about we we stand, um, I'll, I'll pray to close, and if you want, prayer up up here with anyone um come up while we're praying or afterwards or whatever suits you cool would you like to stand oh jesus thank you for your love for us Thank you that while we were still sinners, you came. Thank you for what you did. Thank you that you see us, all of us. 
Holy Spirit, we ask you to do what you want to do in our hearts and our minds right now, in our lives. And speak to us. Thank you that you have made us, us who believe in you. Taken this little bit of faith that we have and made us clean and made us right with you. Made us whole. You've saved us, Jesus. We thank you so much. Would you bless this whanau as we go out today? To um, be image bearers of this, of this part of your character this week. That we will have the kind of radical, outrageous, scandalous love that you had. Mm. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Come on up if you want prayer or find yourself some kai. I hide here under your shade. I'm held here, covered by grace. I lean in as you call.